Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this new podcast series, we explore elements of American opera, production and reception histories, social contexts, historical valences, and more through our artist and scholar community. In this episode, recorded in 2018, Opera producer Beth Morrison sits down with classical KUSC's Brian Lauritsen in a conversation covering what led Morrison to create her company, Beth Morrison Projects, how BMP and LA Opera formed their artistic partnership, and the relationship between new work and the standard opera repertoire. So the relationship with LA Opera started four years ago, although the planning, I guess, started probably almost six years ago now, with a phone call, a cold call from Christopher Kelsch to my office in New York. We'd never met. I got on the phone with him and he straight out said, you know, I want to bring you to Los Angeles to talk about your projects and to talk about us presenting your work. And I was like, great. (laughs) Let's do it. So the call from Christopher was really this wonderful synergistic thing that happened because I was looking for a way to bring the projects out here and felt a real call to be in Los Angeles. So anyway, I came out and we met and he basically said, we want to present two of your projects a year on an ongoing basis. And so that was the beginning of the partnership. The relationship with LA Opera anchors all of our time out here in Los Angeles, but that we are also working with other LA institutions. So Mm -hmm. we have partnerships that are project-based as opposed to a sort of more formal partnership that LA Opera and I have, which is kind of an ongoing thing. The partnership with LA Opera is the most important partnership out here and pretty pretty much the most important partnership in the life of my company. Mm What was the city like artistically when you first set foot in it, thinking from a professional production standpoint? And how has the the city changed? Because it feels like the scene here is, I don't know if it's more fluid than other places, but Mm. it just feels like it changes a lot from year to year. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like the nonprofit performing arts world and where opera sits within that here in LA, it feels like there's been a lot of this kind of renaissance in a way, or maybe it's not even a renaissance, maybe it's just a beginning, I don't know. But it feels like there's a lot of work that is happening here that is incredibly interesting. I think Christopher Kelsch on the opera side of things is a complete visionary and has the idea for how to take LA opera into the 21st century as a a leading company and what that means in the field as a leader, as an example of what you can do as an A-level company. So working with him has been really great because we really jive on a lot of things and LA Opera through Off Grand and also their now main stage initiative for new works has really become a leading example in the field. So that's been really great to see Christopher stretch what this company has been through his his initiatives. Through the efforts of um, BMP, LA Opera, LA Phil, with Yuval, with Long Beach, um, that LA actually has become a place for opera and a place for new opera. I spend, you know, half my time in New York City, but that space that has been occupied by New York, where really New York has always been looked at as the place for 
cutting edge art, you know, cutting edge music, whatever, that it's really shifting, I think, um, mm. that Los Angeles has really come into the arena in a very strong way and is really giving New York a run for its money. <laughs> That's interesting because I always wonder when we talk about the difference between the two scenes yeah. um, in New York and Los Angeles, and then then we, we do talk about the composers that have moved west. Um, we talk about artists who have really found their voice here on the West Coast. It seems to me that it's not so much that New York is losing too much of anything. It's just that the scene here is growing and adding important voices. I think New York is losing something, honestly. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I love New York, and there's uh, only one New York in the world, and it will always hold that place. But I do feel like the city has become very difficult for artists to live in. I think that artists in New York are going to continue to look for other opportunities and other outlets and other places to be. And I think Los Angeles is number one on that list. And I know, like, for the people in L.A., like, that's a little bit in some ways bittersweet like I think from the people that I've talked to out here like everybody feels proud of that that it is a destination place now and where artists and musicians want to be but that we're also like you know driving prices up here in LA <laughs> now that you know New York has like decided to move here and um and so I know there's a little bit of that tension that exists and it's it's really changed my life being out here and really really very much for the better mm. So tell me about your company and how it started. Um, basically, if, if someone doesn't know anything about Beth sure. Morrison Projects, introduce us to your company. Yeah, sure, of course. So I started as an opera singer. People who are listening may think, like, why does she sound like that? Because I have a cold now <laughs> and I've had laryngitis. But anyway, um, I did start as a singer. I did two degrees in classical voice. Started as a soprano, ended up as a mezzo. And pretty soon after my first graduate degree, I started working in arts administration for the Boston University Tangled Institute. I was teaching out there. It's a program for very gifted high school musicians. It's part of Boston Symphony Orchestra's Tanglewood Festival in Massachusetts. And the program really pulls the best of the best of high school students. I'd been there as a student myself. It's really what sent me on the path of being in classical music. Before that, I thought I wanted to be on Broadway. <laughs> but going to Tanglewood really shifted my focus to classical. And once I took the job with the Tanglewood Institute, I started getting promoted quite quickly. So I was like first like the administrative head of the vocal program. Then I was the assistant director of the institute. And then at a very young age, I got promoted to be the administrative director of the institute. And so that gave me a chance to really see things in a different way, um, being on the other side of things. And so what I realized really quickly was that having a vision for at that time, it was 10 programs and 70 faculty and 350 students was like life changing because as a singer, you're really just focused on yourself. I was always a very neurotic singer. And so that aspect of like having to always worry about your health and having to always like go to bed early and not eat spicy food and not, you know, not, not, not don't do this, don't do that. And just auditioning, which I never could get comfortable with. So I was always, I never felt like I gave an audition that represented me because my nerves just like killed me. So once I started administration, it was like I could channel all my passion for the art form and for um, classical music into something that wasn't about me. And so that allowed me to really step outside of myself and to really 
make change for people and create experiences for people that were really meaningful. So that really is like that shifted my focus. And I, I worked at the Tanglewood Institute for six years. And um, at the end of that, I was really starting to feel like I was missing my theater roots. I grew up in the theater as a kid. Tanglewood is very educational focused, very classical, classical. So I started like looking around in Boston and seeing, you know, a lot of experimental theater in Boston. And that kind of sparked me because um, I had never seen an opera production to that point that I was interested in. I've, I was bored at every production that I went to. And that's not to say that it was about the music, because I think the, the standard repertoire is extraordinary, but the productions weren't doing it for me. And the theater was. And so I just started thinking, like, what would it mean to start a company that took the best of avant-garde theater making and put that together with opera, which is my art form and I should love it, but like I feel like it's not, it wasn't doing it for me at that time. And so I, I kind of ruminated on that for about a year and then finally decided that I wanted to do that and that I didn't know how to do that. <laughs> um, so I went back to school. I did a degree in theater management and producing at Yale School of Drama. Got an MFA in that. That was really also life-changing and eye-opening for me because I was in contact with the most extraordinary theater artists of our generation, you know, so incredible designers and incredible directors. And I was seeing probably two or three productions a week while I was at Yale. And I started to really just, you know, think that, yeah, this is it. Like, bringing this kind of artist, this sort of young, visionary artist to opera is what the ticket is for me in terms of how I wanted to, to affect the industry. And it was a lofty goal, I guess. And I think there is a lot of hubris in it than maybe naivete, but I wanted to change the industry. I wanted to change the art form. I just did. And, and I felt like this art form has the potential to be the most extraordinary art form of any art form. It puts together music. It puts together theater. It puts together text. It puts together dance. Like, Every single aspect of the arts can happen in opera. So when it's happening in the right way, it can be transcendent. A good example of that is uh, Satyagraha, which LA Opera is doing. And it's the ENO production that has also been with the Met by Phelan McDermott and Julian Crouch. It is the most extraordinary production that has ever been created. And that is my favorite opera as well. So for me, like the pinnacle of what this art form can be is this production. Mm. So that's, you know, that's something I strive for with the work that I'm doing. I was already excited for that production. And now <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's like, I did three years there, learned so much about theater, built my business plan while I was there for BMP and learned how to, how to run a, a nonprofit theater company, which then I translated into opera and put together with another model, which is where I did my fellowship. So my Yale program, you do a semester fellowship at a com company outside of New Haven. I did it with Pomegranate Arts, which is um, Philip Glass's producer and Laurie Anderson's producer and some others. Um, and I learned from Pomegranate how to tour work. Pomegranate toured Einstein on the Beach, mm -hmm. which came to L.A. Opera. I was there. Yes. Um, so Linda Brumbach and Elisa Riguez run that company, and they have always been mentors to me and people who I think are 
you know, they're the good ones. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but their, their model was a touring model, a for-profit touring model. So for me, because I was looking to do new work to work with young artists that didn't have reputations like Philip Glass, I knew I was going to need to be able to raise money. So for me, raising money is about asking individuals, asking foundations, government things. So I became a nonprofit and then also paired the touring model with that. So the touring pays for itself in our company. So we capitalize the works, the physical production, the development of the work, the commissioning of the work, and that's our, our part of it. Then when we tour it to a presenter like LA Opera, they pay for what it means to run the piece for the week. So it's this wonderful partnership of how to get the work out of New York and out to Los Angeles and out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So BMP tours all over. Um, we tour internationally. This year we've got three shows in Hong Kong and two in Australia. And so we're, we're really all over the all over the map, um, which is fun and exciting. My time at Yale, my time at Tanglewood really sort of helped me figure out what this company needed to be. And then I just moved to New York in 2005 and started producing. I had met Nico Muley through Pomegranate during my, my fellowship. I moved and in three weeks I was producing Nico at New York uh, Library Live, which is this wonderful mu music program that they run um, with his piece, Elements of Style. That piece put Nico on the map. Um, he was 23 at the time. He then, like New York Magazine, called him out as like one of the best under 30. Like that was really the turning point in his career was that piece, and it was one of my first pieces. So you know, that was also this wonderful thing to 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 see that you know that could happen. And then from there, I met composers like. David T. Little, Messi Mazzoli, Judd Greenstein, Paolo Prestini, Ted Hearn. And these are really the leaders of their generation. And at the time, you know, we were all really young and uh, maybe they were younger than me, but <laughs> we were all really young <laughs> and we found each other. And they were interested in doing music, theater and opera in a way that their sort of forefathers weren't doing until they were much older. And so they needed a producer. They were self-producing. They were, you know, trying to make things happen on their own. But we came together and realized that we had this like shared vision and that we're like soulmates really and that we we could make something together that was really special. And so we've grown each other up honestly over the last 13 years where my company went from being a scrappy company of just me, you know, one person for the first six years of the company. I didn't pay myself. I was teaching voice at Pace University to support myself. And then slowly, like, things started to change. And it started to change with press. I started to get a lot of press. And once you get Wall Street Journal and The Observer and, and The New York Times doing feature stories, then all of a sudden everything changes. And the foundations want to support you and the presenters want to do your work. And everything shifted the minute that I started to get that kind of press. Prism is coming to LA Opera this season. Is this the, your first time working with Ellen Reed? I've been working with Ellen on this piece for four years. I first encountered her work Winter's Child, which is what Prism has actually become. I heard it work in progress of it, um, or a snippet of it. And I like fell in love with it. Uh, met Ellen and fell in love with her. She's just incredible, amazing energy and vision. And her music has such an incredible, unique voice to it. So we started working on this and Winter's Child at that time had a different libretto, a different librettist. I felt like the piece 
had a long way to go, but I wanted to showcase Alan's work in a very visible arena. So we did a work in progress of it at my festival prototype, which happens in New York in January. Out of that, Ellen met some people that became very influential and instrumental in her life out here in LA. Through that, she got her master choral commission through that, you know, and then it just sort of snowballed. So I knew that the piece wasn't ready to be produced, but I wanted to get Ellen's name and music into the world. So that was the reason that we we kind of jumped in at that point. Since then, we've got a new librettist on board. We've been workshopping the piece for the last couple of years um, with our developmental partners, ASU, University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana Lyric Theater. And we're now at the place where we're about to head into the actual rehearsal period and tech and world premiere here in Los Angeles, which is really exciting. And then we'll take it immediately after to my festival in New York prototype. And Ellen is having an unbelievable year. (laughs) I think she's the only composer who in one year has had premieres with LA Phil, LA Master Chorale, LA Chamber Orchestra, and LA Opera. It's a really exciting moment for her career. It's also a really exciting moment, I think, for Los Angeles that these major institutions have gotten behind a young woman composer, I think says a lot about the city and about where things are headed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I think in one of my pieces on KUSC, I, I called her uh, the unofficial composer in residence for the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, and we should have that thing, by the way, right? We should have that thing. And also that's awesome. <laughs> like, that's right. so great. And like, awesome yeah. to put that together. Um, yeah, I think she is. And it's how exciting is that? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a 35 year old, incredible mind, incredible talent and is fierce in every way. And the fact that LA has opened up for her is, mm-hmm. I think, really incredible. Tell us about the work. So Prism is a psychological drama about a mother and a daughter. There's a trauma that happens in the daughter's life. And the mother, from the point of that trauma, then creates a world that they exist in that is really a fantasy world. I don't want to give it away because <laughs> there's there's a big reveal, um, mm-hmm. so I don't want to give it away. But needless to say, it's really about the links that humans can go to to overcome trauma, to sweep things under the carpet, you know, that kind of thing, that, that we want to exist in a positive place and what, it, what are the lengths that we will go to to do that. Mm-hmm. It's moody and it's, it has this extraordinary sound world. There's this kind of force, you'll find out what that is later, but there's a sort of <laughs> force outside of their bedroom, outside of their door, which is represented by the choir. And um, it's, a, it's a small chorus of 16. But the way that Ellen writes for chorus is incredible. And she creates these extraordinary sound worlds through voice. And that's, I think, in this piece, mostly represented through the choir. Mm. There is a, a real visceral quality to her music. Um, and you mentioned her choral writing and just thinking about Dreams of the New World at, yeah. at the Master Chorale. It had that, like just absolute intensity that just like does something to you physically as as you listen to it. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's how I felt the first time I listened to her music. It was a visceral response. And 
it's interesting that, you know, in L.A. this fall, we're doing Soldier Songs by David T. Little. And we're doing Prison by Ellen Reed. And the only other composer that I had put on and had that same immediate reaction to was David mm. when he sent me Soldier Songs. And it was just this, like, visceral reaction that I almost, like, started sweating. You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> there's something important here and all the composers I work with I have that experience with and like they all have unique voices and if I don't feel that deep connection to them I don't do the work because these things take I mean like blood sweat and tears I probably make like 25 cents an hour if you actually really <laughs> like looked at all of the work that we put into it but Ellen absolutely hit that with me and it was just like whatever it takes to get this done like we have to do this like we have to do this work um, James Dara is directing he's a wonderful LA based director who's doing a lot in both orchestral worlds and in the opera worlds um, his star is really rising and he did Missy Mazzoli's Breaking the Waves which was a huge success and uh, Roxy Perkins, who is an L.A.-based screenwriter mostly, also playwright, is the librettist. Mm. And she has a very unique style. When you look at her libretto, it looks like a, a screenplay. Mm. I actually believe that through this experience, I've, I've come to believe that I think where we ought to be looking as a field for librettists is actually screenwriters. Mm. Because what they do is they actually give space for the music to happen. In film, it's for you know, scenes without words, of which there's a lot in cinema. And I think it's an exciting new channel, actually, for us to look to. That's really interesting, because part of the history of this company is using film directors mm -hmm. as directors for opera productions. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that anyone's really thought of that. Yeah, nobody's talking about it but me, but, <laughs> but I'm talking about it pretty loudly wherever I can. Um, and I think there could be a really interesting, you know, partnership to set up like with UCLA or whatever. Like I, I need to ruminate a little bit more on it mm -hmm. to think mm -hmm. about what the right steps would be. But I'm very, very interested in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that playwrights and novelists um, tend to just way overwrite for libretti and poets sometimes don't have the storytelling ability so a screenwriter really kind of economizes all of that if you get the right person um, and synthesizes all of those things together in a way that I think feels like the right thing I love it I yeah. love it David T. Little and Soldier Songs. I feel like his name is probably less known in Los Angeles than Ellen's is. Um, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't think so. Okay. Um, yeah. he, we did his dog days here right. um, four years ago, and it was a really huge success. Uh, David's not an L.A. composer, so Ellen obviously is out here more, and people certainly know her. But I think certainly in the new music community, everybody knows David out here. Yeah. I mean, he's now writing a commission for the Met. He ha premiered a, a huge Grand Opera, JFK, that's gone to a couple of places in the U.S. and Canada. And his he's really, like, working at a very high arena right now in a, in a kind of space. Dave is an extraordinary composer and is somebody who I've worked with from the beginning. Um, he gave me Soldier Songs, which had, had a concert premiere in 2006. It was the first time I'd had that experience of just feeling, like, completely overwhelmed by the music and feeling like I had to 
I had to produce this. Like I had to make it work. That time it was, I just started my company. So I called David and I was like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know where the money's going to come from. I don't know where we're going to do it. I don't know how it's going to happen, but like we have to do this. And so we really partnered, which is how I, the beginning of my company, that's really how I worked. I partnered with the composers and we figured it out together. We would do fundraising together. We would, you know, look at like opportunities for venues together. So it was a really like strong partnership at the beginning for all those sort of fundamentals. Fast forward now, that's not the case. We do all of our own fundraising. We, you know, do all the venues, like all those things. But at the time, I, nobody knew me in New York. I was brand new. I, I don't have money. I didn't come from money. I had like not two cents to rub together. So it was like, you know, how do we make this happen? Um, so David and I partnered and we just like immediately like were drawn to working to each other. Like he's, he, in some ways, he really is like an artistic soulmate. Like we just think the same. I have a huge love of rock and roll and his background is a rock drummer. Soldier Songs has a lot of rock and roll in it. Um, he's got a lot of like metal influence in it as well. And so his sound world just really jived with me. And I felt like this is something I have never heard before in opera. Nobody's writing like this in opera. And it felt contemporary and it felt young and it felt like, oh, this is it. Like, this is what I have been looking for. So we, over the course of a couple of years, worked on it. Uh, actually, Yuval Sharon directed that production. Uh, we now have two productions of the piece. One is Yuval's, and mm -hmm. the other is a multimedia staged concert version. Tours very easily. And Yuval's production is amazing. It involves a child actor, and it's, it's like a very complicated thing because of the child. Um, so, uh, so this one tours very easily. We premiered the piece in a workshop version in 2008. We premiered the world premiere in 2011. Um, we did it in my New York festival in 2013, and I've been touring it ever since. And it's gone to lots of places now. So this year we're going to be here. We're going to be in Austin, Texas with it. Next year, we're going to be in Chicago, Chicago Opera Theater with it. Atlanta has done it. San Diego has done it. So it's a piece that's getting a lot of play. Yeah. David didn't know it was an opera. Um, he likes to say <laughs> that I told him it was an opera. It's basically, um, I call it song cycle through opera um, or opera through song cycle. Um, and, you know, it's set up in that sort of structure of a song cycle, but it really, and while it's not one character, it's several different characters, each character is portraying some aspect of a soldier. So it starts with a child and playing, you know, with toy guns. Then it goes to being a teenager and playing video games. Then it moves to enlisting and what that experience is. And then the sort of like high point of the piece is a, um, what I think foreshadows David's later writing the most um, is this, I think it's a, I don't know, eight minute aria that is called Two Marines. And it's a father who sees the Marines coming to his door. He knows why they're coming, which is to tell him that his son has died in war. And this is a true story, actually. This, this is a true story. Instead of opening the door, he goes out the back and pours gasoline over their car and lights it on fire. And so this is a true story that David had read about and 
came into this opera. It's incredibly emotional. It's a, the dramatic structure of the aria really, like I said, foreshadows these these very long sort of shenas that David writes in opera. And this is the first of those. Mm. Um, so one of the things I love is to like watch the genesis of a artist, of a composer, and like how they change over time. And now that David's written so many other things, you can really see, yeah, this is this was the beginning. Yeah, wow. Amazing. As we wrap up, what do you say to people who talk about the the decline of opera, who talk about the struggles of opera, who talk about audiences not as interested in opera, and, and you see different evidence in what your company is doing and... Um, you know, also here with this partnership with Los Angeles Opera, what is your um, response to that kind of talk? My response to that talk here in the U.S. is that's not true anymore. There's been a real incredible um, rebirth of the art form in the last, I'd say, five years, um, which has resulted in this explosion of new work that's being written. Most major companies and most small companies now are doing new work as part of what their offerings are. And they're finding that people are coming to these pieces. And actually, anecdotally, I don't have the data on it, but anecdotally, you talk to a lot of people that are saying, my La Boheme is not selling out, <laughs> but my new work is selling out, my Silent Night or whatever they're putting you know, on the main stage is a big thing. And then a lot of people are also doing smaller stage work, which is, I think, the biggest birth in the field is chamber opera. New contemporary American chamber opera has exploded in this country. Christopher Kelsch, when we did Dog Days, said that probably the most, and that was the first piece we did together, probably the most exciting thing about that was that 75% of the audience was new. And that's, I think, what new works can bring to a company. It does draw a younger audience. It does draw new people. And, you know, the way Christopher talks about it, I think, is really great, which is one isn't better than the other. And even if the person who comes to Dog Days never goes to the Dorothy Chandler to see La Boheme, it really doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that we're creating interest and excitement in this art form for the future, which involves standard repertoire and involves new work. And I think he articulates that really beautifully. And my company was not put on this planet to do repertoire. What we do and we do really well is develop new work. And so for us, that's our whole arena. But for the larger companies that are doing repertoire and new works, they're finding this as a way to bring in new people to this art form. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.